text across to your audience, you need to come up with one crystal clear sentence that you're going to communicate that's going to make your point in such a way that people will be convinced and persuaded that they need to believe you or that they need to change their mind on a certain thing. We call it an argument sentence. Welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible. I'm Nancy Guthrie. Help Me Teach the Bible is a production of the Gospel Coalition sponsored by Crossway, a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible Christian Books and Tracts. Learn more at crossway.org. Today, my guest is Colleen McFadden. She's been my guest before. Maybe you've heard her before on Help Me Teach the Bible. And if so, you know exactly why I have invited her back because Colleen is not only an excellent Bible teacher, Colleen is especially gifted at breaking down for people how to pick up and use tools to become better Bible teachers themselves. So Colleen, thank you for helping us teach the Bible. You're welcome. It's always <laughs> great to see you in the flesh, Nancy. I know. Colleen and I are sitting in, around my kitchen table here in Nashville, Tennessee. She has come to Nashville because we're going to have a Simeon Trust Women's Workshop right. this weekend. Yep. Which we love. So there'll be what, 70 women? Yeah, about 70 women. Yeah, from I think it's 33 different ministries around this area that will be there. That's so great. Yep. And we're going to be in the book of First Samuel. That's so, right. Old Testament narrative. Yes. So that's one thing people should understand about a Simeon Trust workshop every time. It's in a different type of biblical literature. And That's right. Yeah, we really believe all of God's word should be taught. And that includes genres like Old Testament narrative and apocalyptic literature. Haven't done Psalms, that one yet. Poetry. Oh, well, come back. <laughs> Maybe in a few years, it'll come to Nashville. I hope so. I want to begin by referring to a diagram. If you have the ability to get online and look at the website page at the Gospel Coalition for this particular podcast, you'll find this diagram, but we can explain it. This has been an important diagram to see something visually for me to help me improve my own teaching. And I think the reason it's so important is that it identifies the weakness of so much teaching. You know, when we, you and I interact with people who are parts of, part of women's ministry in all different kinds of churches. And a lot of times maybe they'll say to us, it's emotional or it's fluffy or lightweight, or the Bible isn't much of a part of it. And a lot of times what they're really getting at, and maybe they don't know how to articulate it exactly that way, is basically the Bible is used, it's opened up, and no matter where it is, the passage in the Bible, and then jumps immediately to, what does this mean to you? What does it mean to me? Uh, completely ignoring its context, what it meant to the original readers, perhaps ignoring the difference that Christ, his death and resurrection makes before making that application. Yeah, well, that's easy, isn't it? It's easy to look at a text and the just truth is, jump. 
and, and many of us grew up that that's just the way it was done. Right. So we've never considered that there's another way to do it. Mm-hmm. Right? So walk us through this diagram and explain it to us a little bit as a, a goal for teachers in the way they want to approach God's word. So you start with the text. That's right. You start with the text. And where do you go from there? Well, you have to first go to them then. You Meaning can't what? immediately go to us now. So what the temptation is as a Bible teacher is to open up the Bible to a passage that you have to teach and you feel the pressure. It's on. I need a word for my women. I need a word for my kids. What do they need to hear from this? And you might find a verse or a word and just camp out on that. But unfortunately, this was originally written to very different people at a very different time. And if we want to know what God has in this word for us today, we have to first go to what his word meant for them then. So if we're studying in my, in my women's ministry at our church, we're doing the book of Philippians. So we first have to go to first century, understand the church at Philippi, understand Paul, where he's writing from in prison in Rome. All of those things contribute to our understanding of what God's word meant for them then before we can understand what it could even mean for us today. Maybe someone hears that and they think, well, that just sounds like a lot of work and it sounds intellectual and and I just want to get at meeting the needs of my people. How would you respond to that? Yeah, well, it is a lot of work. I will be very frank that I think it's we're tempted to be lazy by making it easy on us as Bible teachers to open a passage and just teach from it without doing any of the hard work of study. So it is hard work, but it's rewarding work. It really is rewarding. Um, what God has to say to the people then, um, the main point that he's going to give to his to his listeners at that point is crucial for all of God's people and all of God's time. So if we think we need to open the Bible and have a message for our people today, well, God's already given it. You you know, one thing, that I, I have a friend in, in Toronto. His name is Diego Lopes, and he says, what's so great about this way of studying the Bible is we're free to stick to the text. We're free to stick to the text. We don't have to come up with something that we think would be meaningful to our listeners. We just take what God has put in his Bible as meaningful for his people. And it will be meaningful to them. All right. So many of our episodes on Help Me Teach the Bible are really focused on this first step of getting to them and then and focusing on doing the work of exegesis, looking at the structure and the context and all of those things to figure out what the passage is really saying uh, from the original writer to the original hearers. And what I really want us to focus on is the next two parts of that. So the next part of it, we'll go from then, then. We also don't want to go from then, then directly to us. We don't want to do that because you know what can happen then if we go, if we open up, say, the book of Philippians and we just go to them then and find out what's for them then. If we try to immediately go to us now, two things can happen. Our teaching can either turn into a very intellectual dump perhaps, of just knowledge of working through a text verse by verse saying all these different things that you learned in commentaries or or from your study. Or it can, that's one side, the intellectual dump. Or the other way it can go is it can become very imperatival. What you've got to do. What you've got to do. That's right. This is what these people had to do. This is what you need to do now. 
and you've missed a really important step, which is what you're leading to, which is... <laughs> which is, you describe it in a couple of different ways. One way is to say to travel through the cross or connect to the gospel. So That's what do right. you mean by that? Right. So we believe as Christians, if we teach the Bible, we must legitimately connect our text to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's Christ himself who told us to read our Bibles in this way, didn't he? I think of Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, when he meets the disciples and they're sad that he's been crucified and they don't recognize who he is. He wants to teach them about him. What does he do? He opens the Old Testament and he says all of these things written in the Old Testament point to me and not just to me. They point to specifically his death and his resurrection. I think it says it there in Luke 24. It says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that's teaching from the Old Testament. He goes on to say from there that this good news should be proclaimed in Jesus name to all nations. And he's I think they're referring to the um, apostolic witness, which would be the um, apostles taking that good news out to the ends of the earth. And we see that written in our pages on the New Testament. So all of the Bible is written about him. So he's saying to those apostles, there's a lens through which you need to understand the whole of the scriptures. And for them at that point, the Old Testament and you need to understand it's most profoundly about me. Isn't that helpful? Yeah. Isn't that helpful that Jesus taught us how to teach the Bible? Yes. And, <laughs> and I think anybody who's listening knows that if you listen to much Bible teaching, that it is the teachers who carefully, beautifully, even heartbreakingly travel through the cross who get to the person and work of Christ through his life, death, resurrection, ascension. That is the part of the teaching where our hearts melt and we find our love for Christ kindled. And I also think that it's the kind of thing that a lot of us who are less experienced teaching, when we hear someone do that, there's a sense in us that we think, I want to do that, but maybe we're not sure how to do that because maybe when we look at our text, it doesn't naturally arise to us and it feels like it might feel really artificial to kind of stick the cross in there somehow. So how have you developed your own ability to be able to travel through the cross, to get to the gospel, even in passages of scripture where it might not be incredibly obvious? Or does it becoming more obvious to you? Well, the more you practice, the better you get at it. I mean, that's what I tell all the ladies that I train at our church and at our workshops. Practice, practice, practice. The more you practice it, the better you'll get. When I first started this, I didn't know how to travel through the cross. You know, I, I needed help. I needed someone to come alongside me. I needed feedback on how well I did. Um, but once you get to that point, once you say, okay, I want to teach the Bible and I want to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ and I want to practice this, I think there's just a few strategies that you can tuck in your pocket that you could use when you open up your Bible. And I think the strategies will vary based on what type of literature that you're in. So um, I mentioned that we're studying the book of Philippians in our women's ministry at my local church in Philadelphia. Um, epistles are brilliant for teaching the gospel because the best, most used strategy in the epistles is it's in the text. So often, Paul mm -hmm. and the other writers 
are declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. We don't have to work hard to make a connection because they've already laid it out for us. So if you're in the epistles, that's going to be your go-to. But this weekend, as you mentioned, we're going to be at a workshop here and we're doing 1 Samuel. And that's in the Old Testament before Jesus Christ came. So we don't have any, oh, it's in the text, any clear signs like that. So in the Old Testament, when you're especially in Old Testament narrative or Old Testament history, your best friend, your best strategy is going to be the discipline of biblical theology. And I know that could be a big term, but I know you've also talked about it on this podcast a lot. So biblical theology is is tracing the storyline of the Bible, right, from, from beginning to end. Um, so if I'm in, we're in 1 Samuel this weekend, I need to understand where does 1 Samuel land in the storyline of the scriptures? And then then that's my starting point. So I know where I'm, where, where I'm going to be. Um, and then from that point, the strategies that I want to use there are um, look for themes that are related to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So perhaps um, there could be something related to sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow, that's a loaded term, isn't mm-hmm. it? Because and we, even the word atonement, atonement was in that first chapter we're going to look at in yes. 1 Samuel 3. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, themes is going to be a, a super helpful strategy if you're going to be in the Old Testament. Uh, you could even look at something like typology. I know you've had David Murray on here before. I, that's an excellent podcast. Typology is basically taking a um, person, object, or event that is patterned after Jesus Christ. So it's a type of Christ. Let me give you an example. So we're in 1 Samuel this weekend. 1 Samuel 16 talks about the anointing of David, of King David. And in that passage, it says that as he's anointed, the the Spirit of God rushed on him. Or Here it says, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Oh, well, that's interesting because I think about Jesus Christ and when he came and when he was baptized and the heavens opened and the spirit descended on him. I mean, you can just see those connections, um, how this story of David being anointed king in 1 Samuel 16 points to the greater king that is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one that is to come uh, Yeah, it's a brilliant way to connect our Old Testament to the gospel. And sometimes a type can be a contrast because I'm thinking about the earlier chapters. You've got Eli and Eli's sons. And here is this person who's supposed to be the mediator between God and his people. And they're a picture of the failure of the priesthood. And so whenever we say a priest in the old Testament, that should make us think in a sense about the great high priest. Absolutely. So if we're teaching these passages about these priests who are a failure, one way to get to Christ to travel through the cross is to talk about Jesus, not only as the once for all sacrifice, atoning sacrifice, we see it there, but that he is also the great high priest. He Mm -hmm. is the one true mediator who will never fail when you think about uh, those two sons, what is it, Hophni and Phineas? Phineas. Yes, you know, they're tape, it says specifically, they're taking bribes mm-hmm. and they're not pursuing justice. What a beautiful way to get to Christ, to talk mm-hmm. about this priest who represents us, who is perfectly just, 
we can completely entrust ourselves to him because he is uh, the priest who has gone before us, is even now interceding for us in the presence of God. And we can be sure that he will always do what is right. That is good news. And that's from 1 Samuel that you just taught us that. Yeah. All right. So you mentioned a couple ways we can do, you talked about uh, themes uh, and typology. What are some other ways we can travel through the cross? Make sure our teaching gets to the gospel. Yeah. Two other, um, perhaps maybe slightly easier ways. One would be, is there anywhere that my passage from the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament? That happens all the time, doesn't it? That New Testament writers quote verses or passages from the Old Testament. Now, if a New Testament writer is quoting my Old Testament passage, and that New Testament writer is proclaiming Christ because he's, well, it's the witness of the apostles, right? Um, then I can pretty much understand that he's interpreting my Old Testament text in light of the gospel, right? And interpreting it rightly. <laughs> interpreting it rightly because it's in God's word. That's right. So if, I, if I'm in an Old Testament text that's quoted in the New Testament, well, I'm going to follow that up. I'm going to look that up. And an easy way to get that, to get there, is going to be in a cross-reference Bible. Um, you could probably even Google it to see if it's quoted in the New Testament. That's one easy way. Another one is, this maybe is more common among prophetic literature, but it certainly happens in Old Testament narrative, is the idea of promise fulfillment. So is there a promise that's made in the Old Testament that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ? I mean, we've been studying, I, well, at least I've been studying 1 Samuel all week, ready, getting ready for this. And so I think of 2 Samuel 7, mm-hmm. right? When, when David is promised to um, have his kingdom established forever. It says, um, God says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. I mean, David did not live forever. What is that promise? Who does that point to? Well, it points to Jesus Christ. The fulfillment is in Christ. So if I'm going to teach 2 Samuel 7, I cannot stop at just David and how great he is and how wonderful that God is. And try hard to be like him in this way, but don't be like him over here. That's right, because he's like Christ. He's not like, he's like the Christ, the King Christ. He's the anointed one in his day and time. That's right. Uh, I want, I don't know if this would fall in the category of promise or fulfillment or not, but once again, from first Samuel, because I think it's helpful for people to hear examples of what we're talking about. If you'd been following the story of the Bible since Genesis, you would, you would know you're tracing a line. We've, we've, we've read lots of genealogies up to this point and we're tracing the line. And when we get to the end of Genesis, we know, okay, so this promised one is going to be in the line of Judah and, uh, he's going to have a scepter that he is going to reign over all nations. So, okay, now we know, uh, that this one is going to be kingly, and he's going to be in the line of Judah. And as, as we move on from there and we finish the Pentateuch, we get into Joshua and Judges. Then we get to that beautiful little book of Ruth. Mm-hmm. And at the, that ends with, what is it doing? Kind of a genealogy. It's showing and that uh, Naomi has a son. And then there's Obed. And Obed is uh, the father of Jesse. And Jesse is the father of David. And that's another way I think we can get to Christ because that lineage then doesn't stop at David. Because when we open up the New Testament, 
in the very first sentences of the New Testament, Matthew, one of the first things it tells us is that Jesus is the son of David. Mm-hmm. And if we go to the last chapter in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation 22, Jesus himself, how does he describe himself? He is, says he is the son of David That's right. and the lion from the tribe of Judah. And so we look at that and that has to impact how we teach for Samuel mm-hmm. and how we teach about David. Yeah. And that's a way that helps us to get to Christ and what he accomplished as king mm-hmm. and is yet to accomplish as king. I, I think you're right on. And it, it occurs all throughout the Old Testament that leads us into Christ. I Several years ago, I taught through the book of Haggai. I mean, who teaches through Haggai, right? <laughs> Colleen McFadden well, does. Well, I and for the record, I say Haggai, not Haggai. Okay, but you can say it any way you want it as long as you teach it. <laughs> I didn't grow up singing the song. I think that's where people what get the song. Sing There's, it. There, I don't know it. There's some Bible I don't song know it where you say Haggai in the okay. song. <laughs> okay, but anyway, I taught on Haggai, and it's it, it's so intriguing in this little prophetic book. It has this continuation of this line of Christ, um, Zerubbabel is actually in the book of Haggai. And the book of Haggai is is people coming back from exile. You know, the Israelites have been pushed out and um, they're coming back and you just wonder, is there any hope? How could the Messiah come from this line of Judah? Is there any hope left? And there is Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. And then it's so fascinating. When I was teaching this, I told my ladies, okay, now let's go to the genealogies in the New Testament. And there's there Zerubbabel's name. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so exciting because you realize, wow, this book really is one whole book Absolutely. put together. In Simeon Trust, one thing that's emphasized in this traveling through the cross is the emphasis on what the gospel is and that it focuses on specifically the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Would you talk a a little bit about that? Because even this week, as I was preparing for first Samuel, I would find ways I was going to get to Christ and various aspects of his person and work. It wasn't always specifically Death and resurrection. Yes, I think there are other legitimate ways to get to Christ. Um, I would now phrase the, if I were to ask a question in your preparation of a text, I would now phrase it, um, what aspects of the gospel are on view here? And I think the death and resurrection is going to be the key one. I mean, that's the atoning sacrifice. That is the good news that Jesus Christ took the punishment for us. He rescued us from from death so that we may live with him forever in his resurrection. I mean, that clearly is, is what we're pointing towards. But I think there's aspects of the gospel that we can also connect to that will lead us there. So maybe it's his incarnation, something to do with that, right? Or maybe it, it, it does have something to do with his divine power of healing or um, his authority of teaching. Um, in each of that, we can't, I'll say we can't stop too short, though, in just saying Jesus was a good teacher because I have lots of friends that are not Christians that would agree with me on that, wouldn't they? Right. So I think we need to connect to him perhaps as a good teacher, but why is what did he, he teach? What did he teach? <laughs> he taught with authority. Well, what authority is he getting that from? Yeah, I, th- I think there's ways that we can connect to the gospel. I don't think we have to be too rote and every time just always 
you know, repeating the death and resurrection of Christ. We, we need to show variety. And well, honestly, it's, we don't even have to try hard to show variety. It's in the text. Whatever, however the text is pointing to the gospel, that's the way we should mm-hmm. be pointing to the gospel. Uh, but I think we do need to get to the good news of Jesus saving sinners because there could be people in our audience who don't know that good news. They've never come clear on what that good news is. We don't want to miss that opportunity, right? Absolutely. And I think this teaching this principle or um, committing to, I, I want to run my teaching through this grid to ask myself the question before I step up to teach, am I getting to the gospel is an excellent discipline. Because it can be so easy, I find, in preparing to teach, you get to working on a text, and sometimes I've completely finished it. If I haven't purposefully thought, am I getting to the gospel, I can leave it out. Mm-hmm. Or I can look back and think, oh my goodness, I didn't get there. So mm-hmm. I do think it's one of those things as we prepare to teach that it's just something that's at the top of our preparation that say, am I getting there? And am I getting there clearly? And is the hope and answer I'm presenting to people centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Or is it centered in telling people this is who you have to be? Mm. And this is the work you have to do because that's just not good news. That's not. And I mean, just think, what is the purpose of our teaching? right? Is it to make our people better people? You know, yeah, what is our purpose? It's to glorify Christ, to make his name great, to pray that our people would fall more in love with him or to actually fall in love with him for the first time. That's what we want. That's our purpose of our teaching. We've got to get there. We've got to get there. That's right. All right. So let's go back to our little square we're drawing. One side, we've got the text itself and we've drawn a line upward to them and then, but we're not going to rush to us now yet. We've then gone across to traveling to the cross, but now we're, we're ready. We've done our exegesis. We've got a sense of what's in the text. We know from where in the text we're going to get to the gospel We've studied the text enough to have determined the emphasis, the, the, both the human and divine author's intended emphasis. And we've come to the text with a commitment of saying, you know what? I don't want to just pick whatever I think I want to emphasize. Instead, I want to emphasize what the original writer, the divine author of this text, clearly, as I study the text, wants to emphasize. So that becomes what drives us, what we're going to, that's going to drive what we title our talk. It's going to drive the organization of our talk. It's going to especially drive where we're going to land and end and what we're going to call people in our talk. Um... So help us a little bit now with going from all of this work we've done to actually getting ready to stand up in front of people and teach the Bible. Because I find that that's, that's the scariest part for, for most of us. So yeah, how, how, how do you get started, Colleen? How do you get from text to talk? Man, I do so much study on a text and I, I usually write it out on a piece of notebook paper and I've, 
I find can, I can't type it at first. I have right. to write it out on a yep. piece of graph paper yep. somehow. Yep. I write it out and I have colored pencils and I'm underlining, I'm connecting and, and I'm making decisions on what I think the author's doing. I'm, I'm connecting to the gospel. I'm, I might be referencing a few commentaries just to make sure I'm right or to clarify some points that I'm not sure on, but I can't then just dump that on my people, right? I can't take all that setting, just dump it on my people because they're people and people are the point. And and I'm not teaching them to show them how much I know. I'm teaching them because as we just said, I want them to fall in love with Jesus Christ. So how do I get that across? How do I get from text to talk? Well, if you're going to get your text across to your audience, you need to come up with one crystal clear sentence that you're going to communicate that's going to make your point in such a way that people will be convinced and persuaded that they need to believe you or that they need to change their mind on a certain thing. And at the Simeon Trust, we call that an argument. We call it an argument sentence. Now, people call it different things. It could be a proposition. It could be a telos. It could be a main idea. Whatever you want to call it is fine. But we use the word argument. We're not trying to be argumentative. That's that's not it. It's more, what's my argument that I want to get across, that I want them to leave with, that I want them to be persuaded to, to to be convinced of? When you prepare, you're going to give an exposition this weekend at this Simeon Trust workshop. So you worked on the text. Did you write a sentence? I wrote a sentence. Um, a and, clear, concise sentence, hopefully. Now, and you used this sentence in your talk or this was more guided you in preparing the talk? Both. So before I can even start to think about what I'm going to say, how I'm going to quote unquote, fill up the 30 minutes, I have to have that argument in mind because if I don't, I don't know where I'm going. I have no idea where I'm going to land. But if I have that one argument, then everything I say supports that reasoned argument. And just, I mean, that's just good, uh, practice of a, of a teacher to use, but it's helpful for a listener. I mean, imagine yourself as a listener and, and we listen to lots of sermons and talks out there. When a, when a Bible teacher is on one point, they have one thing that they want you to come away with. Well, that's so much easier to listen to than if there's a series of unconnected random observations about a passage, right? I just, I want to know, like, what, what do you want me to get from this, Nancy? Mm-hmm. Right? You know, just give me that one thing. Now, in my talk, though, when, so it's going to guide me to preparing, right? But then in the actual talk, I, I do uh, repeat that phrase and I repeat it in a way like, I have it memorized. I don't need to look down at my notes and know where I'm going because this is the one thing. If I want the one thing for people to walk away with, I better know that by by heart, by memory, right? So I have it by memory. And I, I usually, depending on what the talk is, I'm usually going to say it in the beginning somewhere so that they know, you know what I'm setting up to do. And then throughout the talk, I'm probably going to repeat it. Again, it depends on what the message is. I'm probably going to repeat it, but I'm probably going to repeat it in different ways. I might um, reverse it, or I might uh, say the opposite of it, or I might show what's at stake if you don't believe it. Or, you know, I... I but it's I, like a touchstone. It's You're a always touchstone. coming back to. I'm always to. coming back to that. That's right. And all of any, if I have points like 
three points in my talk. Mm -hmm. They're all going to be related to that main argument. They're all going to support the reasoning, the explaining, the proving of that one argument. As I was working on coming up with those kind of sentences for the passages we're working on this weekend, something happens that quite often happens both in my own work and I've recognized it in the work of others. And that is, I, I came up with a sentence on one of them and then I looked at it and I thought, you know what? That could come from about anywhere in the Bible. That's happened to me. That's I, right. Yeah. So I just thought, no, I, I've, I've got to refine this until this sentence uniquely reflects what is in this passage. That's right. And that really helped me then to not be so general. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, it, it helped me in every step of the process to make it more interesting, to make it more tied to the passage. And therefore, the applications for both believers and unbelievers became both more interesting as well as I think more true to the scriptures. That's right. More life. That's right. And what can happen if we're too general is each one of our talks, if we're teaching regularly, can begin to sound exactly the same because yeah. we're saying just these general truths every time. But I want to know, what is First Samuel 31 about? What does it have to do for me? Why should I care about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think another challenge can be that in that sentence, sometimes I have to make choices of some things that are in the larger passage that aren't in the sentence. Like what? Maybe there will be a number of ideas in the text, but I want my sentence to be clear. So it doesn't mean I won't mention those things in the talk, but part of being a good communicator is deciding, okay, I think this is the emphasis of the text, and so this is going to be my emphasis, and I don't want to ignore you know, big chunks of the text or significant issues in the text, but you do have to make some choice if you've got 30 minutes. You have to make some choices and your clarity and focus is going to help get that across to your listeners rather than having just a grab bag of ideas that are in the text. Yeah, I'll say two things related to that because I, I I think this is something that we all face. One thing I would say is to help you craft that argument to know what to use is Use the words of the text. Yeah. Use the words of the text. What's in that text? Maybe it's a repeated word that's mm-hmm. emphasized. Well, that should be in your in your argument sentence, right? That's one thing I would say. The second thing I would say is we are growing Bible teachers. We are always coming to the text with fresh eyes. At least that's what I hope I'm doing. I'm always coming to the text with fresh eyes. And my goal is to do the best that I can at that moment by the help of the Holy Spirit. And you bet I pray a lot about this. I mean, I pray every day just for ministry in general, but then when I come to a text to prepare, I really pray that God would help me understand it faithfully. But I can tell you, I've come back to teach texts. I actually just taught through First Peter last weekend, and I taught through First Peter 1, and I've taught that text probably three or four different times. Every time my talk was completely different. Because every time I came to it with mm-hmm. fresh eyes, and not not that I was totally off the first time. I mean, by God's grace, I wasn't totally mm-hmm. off. But he's helped me to come clearer on understanding his words. So I don't want us to feel paralyzed by, oh, I, I'll never get to that argument sentence so we don't try at all. No, we, d- we need to take a shot at it. Mm-hmm. You know, let's, let's try it. Let's do it. And let's get better at it. 
Let's do something, Colleen, because I feel like um, what's really helpful to our podcast listeners is not just to talk about how to do it, but to demonstrate it. Wow. All right. So how about if we're going to look at six passages this weekend at Simeon Trust, right? And you and I have both prepared all six passages. Yes. Right. So we've each come up with a sentence for each of these six passages that if we were going to teach it, this would be the focus of what we're going to teach. I bet ours will be somewhat different. Yeah. There'll probably be some similarities as well as some differences. All right. Let's pull them out. Yeah. Sometimes we're intimidated by things when we think there's one right way to do it. And if I did it, quote, wrong. Mm -hmm. And so even by how different ours might be, I don't know, maybe they'll be the same, but um, (laughs) how different they might be, it does just demonstrate that God works through our personalities and uh, the way we see things. So, okay. So first, first Samuel three, and most people are probably familiar with that passage. This is the passage where... Uh, the little boy, Samuel, is asleep outside the most holy place uh, in the temple, and he hears God calling to him, but he thinks it's Eli, keeps going to him, and then Eli sends him and says, no, it's the Lord speaking to you, mm-hmm. so listen to what he has to say. And when Samuel hears what the Lord has to say, it's actually a word of judgment. Yeah on Eli and his family. So uh, there were some repeated words in this passage. We keep hearing about hearing, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, There's this repeated, here I am Mm -hmm. in response to hearing God's word. And the other big repeated thing throughout this is the word of the Lord. That's right. The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. In the beginning, it says the word of the Lord was rare. Ding, ding, ding. That's big. Yeah. Uh And then at the end, the word of the Lord went out to... All Israel. Right. Right. So as you look at the passage, you notice what you would call top and tail. You see the beginning and the end. So that's got to be somewhere at the heart Mm -hmm. of what this passage is Mm -hmm. about. And Mm -hmm. and let's just be honest. Sometimes I've heard this passage, they just jump immediately. If we're going to talk to jumping to from them then to us now without going through the cross, it just immediately becomes about listening to hear God speak. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think sometimes making the assumption that you can equate this God speaking to Samuel, which must have been an audible voice, <laughs> mm-hmm. with um, today expecting that you would hear God speak to you somehow supernaturally right. in your subconscious thoughts. Right. And so if doing the work that we're talking about helps us to teach this passage um, in a better way than that. All right. So first of all, what was, what was, did you think was the author's main idea? The author's main idea. Yes. Her first Samuel three is in a time when the word was rare, God raised up the prophet Samuel so that he could make known his word to Israel. So that's my main idea. What I think the author of this book, which is not Samuel, even though a lot of times we think Samuel wrote it, but he died in in the middle of it. So someone else wrote it. But uh, what I think that author, why he, why did he write this for his readers to read? Well, he wrote it for that mm-hmm. purpose. Well, I, I like yours already better than mine. No. Because you did put that idea in there about the word of the Lord being rare in that time. And I do think that is so key to this passage. Here's the way I phrased it. I said, God's response to the leadership of crisis in Israel. So rather you, you led out with what was right there in this chapter. I suppose mine was based more on the larger context Mm -hmm. of this book. It's following judges. There's no King in Israel. And I know what's about to happen is he's going to provide a King. So that's what I went with. I said that God's answer to the leadership 
crisis in Israel was to speak to his people through his prophet Samuel. All right, so how are you going to get to the gospel in this passage, Colleen? So I had a couple different ways that I was going to get to the gospel. I, I was going to use two different New Testament passages. One of them was John 1, 1. Just as God raised up Samuel to make known his word, God also raised up Jesus to be the word. And we see that. In and I John did that 1. similarly, except I you said did. John 1, 14. Oh, the word yes. of the Lord became flesh. Yes, mm-hmm. good. Yeah, what That's else? great. Another one I did was Hebrews 1. Uh, God spoke through Samuel as a prophet, but now he speaks to us by his son. Ah, mm-hmm. excellent. All right. And so we, t- we talked earlier about having this one sentence that's going to be your argument. What's your argument in this My passage? argument is, is a little more focused on application. It is trust that God is faithful to make his word known to his people. So I, ha- I wanted that word in there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and to... Uh, trust that God is faithful to make it known because um, the leadership at that time, like you said, Eli Mm -hmm. was not being faithful in, in doing the work of the Lord. And so I'm trusting that God will raise up somebody to make the word known. Well, he's raised up Jesus Christ. Obviously we've already said what's yours. My argument is what a dark and distracted world needs So I'm getting dark because there's no king in Israel. Remember the time of the judges, it's dark, right? And and Eli, the things in the temple are so bad. And I said distracted because I kind of thought with this, there's such a theme about hearing God's word. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to make the case to people that we don't hear God's word because we're very distracted by lots of other voices. Mm -hmm. All right. So I said, what a dark and distracted world needs most is a word from God, a word of judgment and hope. Mm. And the reason I put that in there, because I I thought so often we think about hearing a word from God and it's all a positive word about how Mm -hmm. he wants to bless us. And the, if you look at what the word of God was in this specific passage, it It was was a word of judgment. And I think sometimes we think that that's not what people hear in a modern time Mm -hmm. need or want to hear, but maybe we need to. Mm -hmm. What I like so much about yours, Nancy, is that you've really hit on who you're teaching. Right. I've started to think about yeah, them. Yeah, you're really thinking about who your audience is. And I think when you start with that sentence, you know, if someone were to come up to you and say, oh, what are you going to be teaching on later today at our church? When you lead with that sentence, they're going to want to come hear it, mm-hmm. right? Because they're going to so. relate to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, let's jump to 1 Samuel 8. And I'm sure our listeners will remember this is the passage where... Um, all of Israel, they come to Samuel. He's an old man now by chapter eight and his sons are evil and they're not going to make good prophets or judges after Samuel dies. And so they've decided they, the people have come up with an answer for the problem. They want a king. And specifically they say, we want a king like all of the other nations. And specifically we want a king who's going to lead us into battle. And so they go to Samuel and they say, we, we want a king. Samuel is brokenhearted by this. And the Lord responds saying, basically, I'm going to give them what they want, what they ask for. Mm-hmm. That's a little scary. Yeah. Yep. We immediately see, oh, do you really want what mm-hmm. you ask for when it's not God's timing, mm-hmm. um, God's initiation? All right. So what did you come up with as what you thought the emphasis by the author of this passage would be? Yeah, so taken in context, I said, God gives the people a human king to point them to him 
as the true king whom they have rejected. Because I think throughout the book then of First Samuel in context, by giving them this king, which we find out to be Saul, and how horrible Saul turned out, it points the people to long for God as their king, which that's what it says in the passage, right? That they rejected him. They rejected God as king. So he's trying to point them that, no, I'm, I'm really your king. I'm not sure they want God as king quite yet, but they do they want a better king. Yes. Yeah. All right. So, and how are you going to get to the gospel in this passage? My gospel connection um, relates to the words that are used in the text there when uh, the king that will be given is described several times. It talks about how this king will take from them. Mm -hmm. He will take your sons and appoint them. He will take the best of your fields. He will take the tenth of your grain. He'll take male servants. I mean, it just goes on and on and on about how this king is going to take. Well, earlier you talked about the strategy of contrast when you're connecting to the gospel. Jesus Christ gave. He gave everything. He gave his life. He is the true king, giving all that he had. He left heaven to come down to us, and then he gave his life. I, wow. I had the same gospel, one of the same uh, gospel applications, and I used specific passages thinking, first of all, about John 3.16. Everybody that we teach is going to know that verse. God so loved the world, he gave. gave. This is the kind of king God is. And then similarly, Romans 8.32, which says about God that he did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. So once again, same thing by contrast. Mm -hmm. Any other gospel application you want to mention? I did have a connection to Philippians 2 where it's Jesus is rejected as king, but I personally like the giving, the contrast yeah. of taking. Do you have to better. choose one? No, that's a good point, actually. Yeah. I mean, wow, why not? In your message, talk about the different ways. I mean, they're all mm -hmm. related, right? Because it's all the same mm -hmm. good news. Yeah. Well, I had a couple more. Um, and once again, I'm trying to use words that are in the text mm -hmm. to make the connection. So in verse five, you've got the people speaking and they're calling out. They're saying, give us a king. And actually, I mean, this this one almost moves me to tears. I just thought about the day's going to come when God is going to give them a king, mm -hmm. King Jesus. And what's going to happen? They're going to reject him. Mm -hmm. They're going to crucify their king. They're going to mock him as king, like spit on him and put a crown of thorns on his head to mock him as king. So there's one where we can really get specifically to the death and resurrection because we talk about what happens to him as king, but then he will be raised mm -hmm. and lifted up mm -hmm. as king. I also liked in verse 20, it's, they say specifically, they want a king who does what? who will go out before us to fight our battles. Well, good grief. Mm -hmm. This is who Jesus is. This mm -hmm. is what makes him the great king. Um, in 1 John 3, 8, we read, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I mean, there is King Jesus going out before us on the cross for the very purpose to fight our biggest battle, which is the battle against sin and death. And then I thought of first Corinthians 15, 17. I know I just <laughs> uh, the same thing on going out before us and fighting our battles. This is uh, where we read God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Cause it gets in that. I just thinking specifically about this battle imagery. And then even to the very end of the Bible in 
Revelation 17, 14, the lamb will conquer. And it says specifically, for he is the king of kings. So it relates him as king to his fighting a battle and winning. And I thought that relates to resurrection, ascension, as well as his victorious return. So lots of ways to get to the lots gospel. Okay. And then what's your argument in this passage? My argument for this passage, boy, I wish I, I, I want some good feedback at the workshop this weekend to get better at it. But my, my argument that I would give to my audience today from this text is know that the Lord Jesus Christ is your king. And even just reading that, I feel like I need a stronger word mm. at the beginning than just know. But uh-huh. that's where I'm starting at right now. Mine is to have Jesus as your king is to live by faith, not by sight. And Mm -hmm. the way I'm going to get there is basically a big point of this passage is they already have a king, a divine king. It's just that they can't see him. Mm -hmm. And it's the same for us. Mm -hmm. So we we need to live by faith in our divine king Mm -hmm. that we can't see, but believe in him. And we need to obey his voice not ours. Because the other thing that jumped out at me in the passage, it, it, it so sadly says that he uh, obeyed the voice of the people. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's scary. That is. To obey the voice of the people. And, and I thought, man, couldn't you make this so applicable to people today? What is the mantra of the world? Follow your heart. Mm-hmm. Be true to yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, that was exactly their problem. Right. <laughs> rather was. than putting their faith and trust mm-hmm. in God's mm-hmm. word, um, and rather than hearing his voice uh, through his word, they just listened to their own voice, mm-hmm. and it was a disaster. Mm. All right, let's do one more. Okay, one then more. Then we got to move on quickly. All right, so in 1 Samuel 15, this is a passage we might remember. Uh, it's, it's where Saul has an incredible failure. He's been sent out to destroy uh, the Amalekites, he's supposed to destroy everyone, but of course he lets the king live. And there's that humorous line where Saul uh, comes before Samuel and Samuel says, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears <laughs> and the lowing of oxen that I hear, which is kind of a fun thing to get to picture and demonstrate for people. And then basically he gets the message that um, to obey is better than sacrifice. He hasn't obeyed the word of the Lord. And because of this, specifically it says in verse 24, because he feared the people and obeyed their voice that he has been rejected as king over Israel. But I love the wordplay. You rejected the word of the Lord now you are rejected as king. As king. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a heartbreaking scene. So what did, and it's, it's a long passage. So what did you come up with as the emphasis of this passage? Yeah. So I saw the climax in this story as the Lord rejecting Saul as king. So that led me to the main idea. And so that emphasis and context would be God will not allow the anointed king to reign when the king fails to obey the command of the Lord, but rather serves himself. And I wanted to add in rather serves himself because Mm. that's what he does, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. He spares the best and he's, you know, talking about how he's such a good guy and yeah, he's really just trying to serve himself and not obey the Lord. Mm -hmm. 
I said, because Saul rejected the word of the Lord in disobedience, God rejected Saul as king over That's his people. That's clean. I like kind of that. simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so how are you going to get the gospel in this text? Yeah, there's a couple of ways. One way I would try is uh, when Samuel says to Saul, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. I connected it to Jesus's perfect obedience. So we're called to obey rather than sacrifice. He had perfect obedience, which then resulted in the perfect sacrifice, Mm -hmm. right? He fully obeyed God all the way to the cross. And when that was a really difficult thing to do, and that meant it was the perfect sacrifice. So that's one way I do it. Yeah, I went there too, and I would use Hebrews, especially for that. I think Mm -hmm. of Hebrews 5, 9, which says um, that though he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, meaning he demonstrated, lived out obedience. And then on there from Hebrews that he was the once for all sacrifice for all time. Any other? Yeah, well, let me just say, I love what you're doing there with connecting to Hebrews 5, because if you show that in your teaching, then you're teaching your ladies how to read the Bible. So you're showing them, oh, so when I read for Samuel, I could actually go to Hebrews and see it there for myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, really, I think that's really good. It's mm-hmm. helpful as a listener. An- uh, another gospel, way I got to the gospel, I, this the phrase in there, it says about Saul that he built a monument to himself. And that was just like mind boggling to build a monument to himself. And so once again, getting to the gospel by contrast, a far better king, we look at Jesus and he's the opposite of that. We read in Philippians 2 that he humbled himself. And then here was this other key word right there in that passage. He became obedient mm-hmm. unto death, even death on a cross. Mm-hmm. So there we're going to get to the cross, a contrast in this king who humbled himself rather than building a monument to himself. Uh, Any other gospel connections you I think those are good ones. Yeah. Uh, I would just add to that, I would go on with Philippians 2, that Saul, because of his disobedience, is rejected as king. But if we go on with that Philippians 2 passage, we see that Jesus, who humbled himself, is exalted as king. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted mm-hmm. him, given him the name of above every name at which every knee is going to bow. Mm-hmm. There is that kingship. Okay, so you got the you got the author's point or emphasis, your gospel connection. So what is your argument you're My, gonna make the with this? Argument, passage? Yeah, so I really wanted to connect it to Jesus Christ because the kingship was so on display here in this passage. So my argument is trust in the anointed king who truly obeyed and secured your salvation. And one one thing I wanted to do in that was I didn't want to put my listeners in Saul's character. Right? We want to do that a lot of times in Old Testament stories. We, we want to say, oh, so, you know, the point of this story is we should obey. We, that's what we should do because Saul was rejected. He, he uh, was rejected as king because he didn't obey. So we need to obey, which absolutely <laughs> we need to obey. Obey is better than sacrifice. I would agree with that. But this is the king on view here. So that's where I wanted to point my ladies too. I want to say trust in the anointed king who truly obeyed and secured your salvation. Well, one thing I like about that is, yes, we, and I think when we're teaching this, we do want to emphasize obedience. But if we just stop right there, we haven't given our people the gospel. You know what? Because we're never going to obey perfectly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So what we do is we, we've got to get to that perfect obedience of another mm-hmm. and his record of perfect obedience becomes ours. Mm-hmm. That's how we get to the gospel of this. So it's interesting to me that your three sentences so far have all started though with your first one, I think was trust and one was no. Mm-hmm. And this one was what? One of those same thing again, trust or no. Yeah, this one, trust, it was also. Yeah, yeah. all right. So that's interesting, your approach to yeah. your They're not all, arguments yeah. are you're telling him you want them to do something. Yeah, it's not interesting. I realize that as I'm looking at it now, not all of my arguments are like that. But, but it, it just ended it up just that ended way. It just ended up that way here. All right, so here was my um, argument for this passage. I said, and you can see what I'm doing. I, I seem to be already working toward making sure I'm going to get to the gospel with mine um, and maybe too fast. I don't know. But I said, what God's people need is not a king who exalts himself in partial obedience, but the king who humbled himself in perfect obedience. Mm, oh, I like that. There's even a ring to it. So it's memorable. Memorable. Mm-hmm. That's well, great. All right. Well, this has been fun and I and I hope helpful to our listeners to kind of hear some examples of what we're talking about when we talk about getting to the emphasis of the text, getting to the gospel, and getting clear on what our argument is going to be. So thank you so much for being willing to talk through your process and talk through these passages. And I hope those who are listening find it helpful to put a that we've put some flesh on some bones and not just talked about this in general, but uh, giving some specific examples. Um, Why don't you close this way, Colleen, would you just speak directly to someone who's maybe they're thinking all this sounds good. Maybe that it sounds too hard or maybe they think it doesn't sound worthwhile. uh, Or maybe they're thinking this sounds good. I want to do this. Will you speak to people Uh, in regard to those issues and just give them a word perhaps of an encouragement in this word work that we do. Yeah. I talk to a lot of women that say those exact same things to me. And so the two things that I leave with them that are so easy to do, anybody can do this. The two things I say is to practice and to pray. Those are two really important things as a Bible teacher. If you think this is really hard or if you think, Oh, I really want to do this. I think you should just practice. I, I think, and I think if you're not yet convinced, why don't you just try it? Why don't you just see how it goes? I promise it will be fruitful. Um, practice, practice, practice. And then to pray. I, I think to pray for God's help. He reveals himself to us in his word and he's faithful to answer prayer. I have seen God answer my prayers time and time again as it relates to teaching the Bible. I I pray about my own understanding. I pray about the the people that I'm going to be teaching. I pray that they would be convicted and that they would be convinced. I pray for people to come to faith. I pay, pray for I pray for all these things. And boy, if we're not a people that pray, then we must think that we can just do it ourselves, right? No, we can't. I I trust the Lord to do his work through his word. And so as a Bible teacher, I will always be praying. Thank you, Colleen. It's my joy to be your sister in this word work and in helping other people who want to get better at it. Thank you. Yep. You've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of the Gospel Coalition sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian books and tracts, including Biblical Theology in the Life of the Church by Michael Lawrence. 
which provides clear and basic directions for interpreting the text of the Bible, connecting it to the cross, and getting it across. Learn more about Crossway's gospel-centered resources at crossway.org.